Hello and welcome to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. Each year, the prestigious Beverly Alt Scholarship provides senior fellows at the Kinghorn Cancer Centre in Sydney an opportunity to enrich their educational and career training activities. This fellowship honours the life of Beverly Alt and the compassionate care she received at the Kinghorn Cancer Centre. As such, our very own Dr Josh Hurwitz abandoned me to go gallivanting in the United States of America. He was able to attend the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium in Texas, as well as engage with some of the brightest minds in cancer care and research at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. Meanwhile, I was left to freeze in one of the coldest Australian summers on records. No, I'm not bitter. Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, supported by the Kinghorn Cancer Centre and the Beverly Alt Scholarship, is incredibly honoured to present a series of interviews with specialists who have influenced the course of medical oncology on both a global and personal scale, providing the promise of innovative, personalised medicine. In this episode, we stay at Boston's famous Dana-Farber Cancer Institute as Josh interviews Dr. Jeffrey Shapiro. Dr. Shapiro graduated with a Doctorate of Medicine from Cornell University in New York. Go Big Red. He completed his oncology training at Dana-Farber and joined the department faculty in 1994. Dr. Shapiro's particular area of expertise is early phase clinical trials, and he currently heads the Center for Cancer Therapeutic Innovation, with a special focus on cell cycle and DNA repair inhibitors. Hi, Jeff. Thanks so much for being on the show. Sure. Thanks for having me. So, Jeff, what I'm trying to do with this sort of series of episodes is kind of talk about your journey, how you ended up being at Dana-Farber, your work in the lab and those sorts of things. Can you take me back to the start of your career? What led to you getting involved in oncology and ultimately ending up with being, becoming a clinician scientist? Well, well, going back quite a long time. All right. So uh, when I was a resident, I was a resident uh, in the late eight, 1980s down the street at Beth Israel. And, um, you know, at that time, I on my oncology rotations, I saw it as a field of tremendous need. It also seemed like a field where there was exciting research and the ability to really provide very close and in uh, intimate care to patients. And so those two things um, seemed to come together for me. And so I decided to pursue oncology fellowship. And then I went into medical oncology fellowship back in 1991. I did that here at the Farber for a few years. And then I suppose you could say that I'm one of those Farber boys that never left. <laughs> so, uh, and I had good experience during my medical oncology fellowship and had a very well-rounded experience um, treating patients with many different types of cancer. Uh, I then did some work in the laboratory for several years, and I worked on cell cycle-related genes in, in lung cancer, and that actually spurned my interest in cell cycle therapeutics, and I began to develop drugs that were related to the cell cycle. Uh, for quite a while, I was in thoracic oncology from my clinical work, but as new drugs were being developed that were related to my research, it seemed more relevant to be in the phase one program where new drugs are first developed. So I guess around 2000, maybe about 23 years ago now, I moved over to the phase one program at the Farber. And then I've really been there ever since. Uh, so I led the phase one program here between 2007 and 2020 and uh, have developed many cell cycle and DNA repair inhibitor drugs uh, within our program and um, enjoy working on the early phase studies and providing patients with uh, new opportunities once standard treatments have failed. 
And going back just a little bit, that was probably 30 plus years yeah. <laughs> in the making in 15 seconds or less. With your PhD, so I know you've done a PhD and that was in, I think, Cell Cycle as well. Mm. What sparked your interest in that specific area? You know, oncology going back 30 years was a very different game. Yeah. No, 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 for sure. So actually, I did my PhD more in molecular biology and actually worked on influenza virus. So when I first... Uh, you know, first it was in medical residency, I thought that I might specialize in infectious disease. But again, uh, when I, uh, it really sparked my interest was the complexity of oncologic diseases when I was doing rotations with medical oncology patients and the ability to be their primary doctor also attracted me. And that was the two primary reasons that I pursued oncology fellowship. At that time, it was a very exciting period at the Dana-Farber where there was many new aspects of the cell cycle that were being discovered, um, the role of the retinoblastoma protein, the um, the ability to phosphorylate the retinoblastoma protein to move the cell cycle forward, the roles of cyclin-dependent kinases and CDK inhibitors in cell cycle progression as universally dysregulated in cancer. So I saw that as a very, very important and critical pathway and wanted to begin to try to do translational work in that space. And that is really how my developmental therapeutics career got started. Amazing. You have over 671 publications, give or take, maybe more, um, after doing a little bit of a deep dive. On well, that it. might include abstracts as well. Include. So for, for full manuscripts, it's probably between two and 300. <laughs> um, so maybe about half of that. <laughs> okay, sure. Look, e- either, either way, that, that's like one a week. Um, I, I'd love to talk to you about, you know, where you see the phase one, the role of the phase one team going, and also how you'll manage the complexities of uh, sponsor-driven trials Mm -hmm. with funding and both patient expectations and toxicities. Could we go into that sort of a a question? Yeah, no. So phase one work has really evolved over the years. So previously, phase one studies were uh, really very small studies, uh, usually first in human compounds. Uh, They were given in unselected ways to patients. They were new drugs coming off the shelf. We didn't really have biomarkers for selection. And patients who had failed standard chemotherapies that wanted to try something new would go into these small phase one studies. Phase one studies, um, you know, develop drugs starting at very low doses. Small groups of patients will get increasing doses with each group of patient until we figure out the highest dose that we can give safely and what might be a dose that's used then in further line efficacy studies. So much about the landscape has changed, really, I would say over the last 10 to 15 years. So the first issue is that we try to be a little bit smarter about what drugs that we give to patients. So with the advent of tumor profiling, we now have a better understanding of drivers of patients' cancers. Most patients now will come in with some targeted next-gen sequencing and profiling of their tumor, whether it be profiling of the tumor cells itself or now in this day and age, even a blood test where there's a liquid biopsy that just gives us some idea of what the driver of the cancer might be. Of course, lung cancer is the big field where this, you know, one large field where this all started, where really based on the mutations in the cancer, one can identify drivers and then couple them with the correct drugs. But we do try to use the profiling to be a bit more intelligent about the drugs we offer. Um, The other issue that's occurred is that these studies have gotten quite a bit larger and quite a bit more complex. So first of all, 
we often don't stop simply when the maximum tolerated dose is achieved. Often there will be additional work in subsets of patients before it goes on to larger studies. So a phase one study becomes a bit larger and more complex. And when there are subsets of patients enrolled, often those are by disease type. And so we have to have a very facile interaction with disease centers between the phase one program and the people who are disease specific so that studies can move forward efficiently and move quickly from the phase one dose escalation into potentially specific disease types. So a lot more interaction and phase one no longer really exists in a vacuum. Mm. You know, the other thing that most phase one programs Always in the past, we all, we always studied pharmacokinetics of the drugs and the way the drugs were metabolized with many research tests and following the level of drugs in, blood, in the bloodstream over time. But now these studies also have really more proof of principle and proof of concept studies that are associated with them. So we often obtain pre and on treatment biopsies in patients. And we look to see whether we've engaged target. Is the drug hitting the target? It is behaving on the cancer cell the way we expect it to behave. And does all of that biologic effectiveness of a specific drug ultimately correlate with the clinical outcome? So the studies have become quite a bit larger, uh, more complex, uh, difficult to do. Um, patients, uh, you know, for patients to participate in these studies, the research requirements have escalated quite a bit. Patients give us quite a bit of time and courageous volunteerism to, um, uh, to, in order to participate in these studies. And because these studies are complex, they're often shared among multiple cancer centers. So a single cancer center never really does just a phase one study anymore. Mm-hmm. So many phase one studies are shared over multiple cancer centers. And there has to be very, very good interaction between the investigators and the centers in order for the study to move forward efficiently. So it becomes a very, very complex entity and a very, very complex enterprise to maintain phase one programs. There are also studies that are not, that are phase one studies that are directed towards specific mutations um, that patients' tumors might harbor, uh, but often those mutations might be rare alterations. And so that requires quite a large number of sites to participate in order to enroll patients with the correct alterations. So Phase one becomes a very large enterprise, a collaborative effort, and uh, and very, very complex. So the study teams that are leading these studies have to be somewhat large. We have to have all sorts of regulatory help. We have to have research nursing help, clinical pharmacy help. Uh, you know, phase one programs are, are really quite extensive programs in this day and age in order for these things to move forward uh, efficiently and and move forward with uh, generating the robust data that we need to know whether drugs should continue to move forward. One of the mm-hmm. concepts that was raised recently at a conference here in the US is the idea of the maximum tolerated dose Yes. in the, I guess, the phase one world. So, you know, dose-limiting toxicity, finding the maximum dose versus efficacy. Do you think in the field moving forward, this might actually start to shift rather than finding a better balance from our drugs. Yes. So this is the Project Optimus Mm. uh, that the FDA has espoused and that the dose defined by the highest safe dose we can give or maximum tolerated dose might not always be the optimal dose uh, moving forward. And so when should we optimize that dose? Uh, So one can do a phase one dose escalation and get the maximum tolerated dose. But if we've done some biopsies along the way, we might recognize that a lower dose might look like it has some biological effectiveness. And so should the lower dose be compared to the higher dose? 
and really understand whether we need the higher dose to really move forward in larger studies. And so Project Optimus would have us stop at the end of a maximum tolerated dose and potentially randomize that maximum tolerated dose to a lower dose, see if the lower dose is equally biologically and clinically effective, and maybe that's the dose that should move forward for further development and ultimately what goes into large groups of patients. So this has actually gotten to be a very complex question because one could take time to do that randomization early on and see if we've optimized, you know, try to optimize the dose early. But what happens if the lower dose turns out not to be as good? Have we expended using that dose in the in a group of patients who maybe should have gotten the higher dose all along? And should we potentially maybe take our highest dose? get it into the pivotal trial so the drug is FDA approved and available for a large number of patients and then go back later potentially and do some optimization and see if a lower dose could be equally as effective. And so there's quite a bit of controversy and debate about, not about optimization, but actually maybe more the timing of optimization. And should it be done earlier in the drug development process or is that going to unnecessarily a delay getting the drug to large numbers of patients? And should we potentially go back and do that optimization later? So lots of discussion about this. The FDA has called many meetings and workshops, and there's, there's a lot of discussion about what's going on. But there's no question that simply obtaining the MTD, the maximum tolerated dose, and assuming that we're all finished and that there should be no further um, dose optimization, that that concept's going away. And I think everybody realizes that a doses probably need to be optimized based on ultimately what is a totality of data, not only the highest safe dose, but what is a biologically effective dose, what is tolerated best over time. You know, when we define an MTD, that's only often over the first month of treatment. So what is the real tolerability over long periods of time? especially when patients stay on targeted or immunologic agents. So complex questions that are uh, that do make drug development exciting and interesting and definitely keep us keep us thinking for uh, constantly about the best way to do this for patients. So can you tell me a bit of the, you know, you've done a lot of phase one over the last 23 years. What are some of the pivotal trials that you've been involved in that have led to kind of practice changing or paradigm shifting new drugs? <laughs> oh, I wish I had more of them, but I do have a few. So I did quite a bit of phase one work on the cyclone-dependent kinase inhibitors. So we did really three pivotal phase one studies on abemocyclib, ribocyclib. We didn't do the actual initial phase one of palbocyclib, but we did the first study of palbocyclib that actually demonstrated it hit target. So some of the story with palbocyclib or Ibrantz for breast cancer really was that the phase one study had been, it actually went on by some of my colleagues in the phase one field, had completed the study, and there were 70 to 80 patients enrolled. There were doses that were established actually on two schedules, but there wasn't a whole lot of activity. There wasn't a lot of shrinkage of patients' tumors, and uh, there wasn't a lot of what we call partial responses. Um, So Pfizer was really thinking about putting the drug on the shelf, and we we actually convinced Pfizer to let us study palbocyclib, not in breast cancer, but a different tumor called mantle cell lymphoma. And mantle cell lymphoma is a cyclin D1, CDK4-driven tumor. The uh, translocation, which defines the disease, is a cyclin D1 translocation. And so it's driven by CDK4 activity. 
And we used palpocyclib and mantle cell lymphoma, and we said to Pfizer we would get biopsies and do other pharmacodynamic work to at least demonstrate that the drug hit target. And so we did actually the first study that demonstrated that palpocyclib was actually hitting its target in tumor cells. So we did that by biopsying tumors before and during treatment, and we demonstrated that there was a reduction in the phosphorylation of the retinoblastoma protein. We worked out phospho-specific antibodies that we could use immunohistochemically, and we demonstrated that the drug really shut off CDK4 activity. And then we used a special type of PET scan called fluorothymidine PET scan, which demonstrated that a consequence of that was to reduce the fluorothymidine PET uptake in the patient's tumors, which was consistent with G1 arrest. And some of this did actually correlate with good outcome for some of the mantle cell patients. And so Pfizer was convinced that the drug was hitting target and then was a little bit more liberal about letting the drug go forward in larger studies. And the drug began to be studied more extensively in breast cancer. Some of that was happening simultaneously, but to begin to be studied in larger breast cancer studies and combined with hormonal treatments. And then also it was studied in a disease called liposarcoma where actually the drug now has, um, and by the NCN, NCCN guidelines, palpocyclib can be used in liposarcoma. So we did some of the first study that really demonstrated that palpocyclib hit target and that shutting down the cell cycle in these mantle cell lymphoma cells could actually correlate with a good clinical outcome. We then went on and we did do the phase one studies. I was involved in the phase one studies of both ribocyclib and abemocyclib drugs that ultimately then were combined with hormonal therapy and have made a major impact in breast cancer. Uh, for abemocyclib, we used our retinoblastoma phospho-specific antibody assays again, and we actually demonstrated that if we only gave the drug once a day, we didn't maintain target engagement for the full 24 hours, despite some of the pharmacokinetics that we were achieving with the drug. And so that is actually what converted abemocyclib to a twice-daily schedule where we showed with the twice-daily schedule, we could suppress the RB phosphorylation for the full 24 hours and get better target engagement that was lasting. And that actually contributed to the twice-daily scheduling that we currently use for abemocyclib. So I would say for those three drugs, for palpocyclib, abemocyclib, and ribocyclib, the drugs that have ultimately transformed breast cancer care, I think we were involved with very pivotal early phase studies, which helped those drugs move forward. So I suppose I'm very, very proud of that work. Amazing. Yeah. You might be able to answer this from a phase one perspective. So the, the data readouts of ribocyclin, pelbocyclin, and abemocyclin have not all come to fruition, and they've all got somewhat varied results with yes. pelbocyclin almost being the the poor cousin, um, depending on who As the data to. have evolved, yeah. yes, over time. Was there anything, any signals in the early data or in the early phase one stuff that you could see that might have indicated different binding to the CDKs or sort of different right. efficacy? Yeah, so there was always a question about whether abemocyclib was a bit different. So abemocyclib clearly behaved like a CDK4-6 inhibitor in many preclinical models. Uh, but biochemically, the drug did seem to be a tad more promiscuous in in vitro assays, potentially also hitting CDK2 and also potentially hitting CDK9. So that one potentially um, did look that it could have been a bit different uh, biochemically from the beginning. At the clinical level, abemocyclib also had also had uh, a different toxicity profile. So whereas palpocyclib and ribocyclib were more hematologic toxicity as the primary toxicities, 
Ribocyclib carried a bit more baggage as well, but mostly hematologic toxicity. Abemocyclib seemed to have a bit less hematologic toxicity and more gastrointestinal toxicity. And it's not completely clear um, why that is and whether it is because it might hit some of the other CDK proteins. But there were some hints early on that abemocyclib might be a little bit different. And some of the emerging data now is suggesting that abemocyclib might be useful after, say, palbocyclib. So some of the data that has been developed by our colleagues at Mass General has demonstrated that we might be able to use abemocyclib even after um, palbocyclib. Um, same, though, is beginning to be true with some of the data coming through on ribocyclib as well, which is a little bit less, less, a little more challenging to understand, uh, except if one can argue that there might be uh, slightly different potencies and a slightly different ability to inhibit CDK4 a bit better. So we don't uh, know the full answer to the question, uh, but it's true in the overall survival data the drugs are not looking absolutely identical. And this is affecting practices right now as the data continue to emerge. It was a curly question, mm. I must admit. I don't <laughs> think there's a, there's a golden answer yeah. to that. I have a couple more questions. One being, from an American standpoint, equitable access to trials with balancing time toxicities and financial toxicities. What, what do you see the role of phase one in playing this? Because in Australia, there's quite a big conversation now. It's like, we define time toxicity as number of encounters with the healthcare system on any given mm-hmm. day. And phase one definitely has significant requirements from a safety standpoint. How yeah. do you see this evolving? Right. So I think there needs to be very good partnership between insurers, um, you know, the federal government for NCI sponsored studies and drug companies. Uh, but I think um, we have to have coverage for patients to participate in clinical trials. So typically the way trials work is research tests, studies that are only done for research need to be paid for by the sponsor, which would be the pharmaceutical company or in some form of an NCI grant if this is an NCI-sponsored study. And then there will be other components of the patient's care that could be considered standard of care. And we have to have insurers cooperate in order to um, give people access to trials. So there has to be partnerships from many stakeholders and many components, but ultimately there has to be there has to be equity, there has to be access, and everyone needs to be able to access uh, these studies. You know, one of the things that that's hard though is that in the early phase studies, there's so many research requirements that often these sort of get done at the larger cancer centers. And the question is, is there anything that we can do to make things easier for patients and allow a partnership even with community oncologists to let more things be done? locally, potentially so patients that are not in close proximity to a major cancer center can still participate. So some of this was actually evolving during COVID where we were able to ship drugs, patients were able to do laboratory tests or evaluations with local physicians, and that still was acceptable data then to use. All of that has kind of gone away as the pandemic has abated. And I wonder whether some of those things that were evolving are things that should be thought about again in order to make trials more accessible and easier uh, for patients uh, to participate. Yes, the role of teletrials mm. and mm. remote access is yeah. a very important thing. For young researchers who are interested in the phase one world, what role do you see them playing in the future? Well, I think we always need new blood and we <laughs> always need new, pa- new, new um, physicians coming in that are interested in developing these studies and working in them. Um, you know, it's interesting though, uh, medical oncology still really does work by disease types and 
people, especially at academic medical centers, do tend to specialize in disease types. But in each disease type, one can enroll patients that are on phase one studies. So the way we work it here, for example, is our phase one program has um, early career investigators who are liaisons to the phase one program, even though they work particularly in one disease center. And so there'll be one person in thoracic, one person in ovarian, one person in breast, they became breast cancer, they become expert in those fields, but they're also then the person that has the pulse on the new trials, what's coming through phase one, and are able to offer those trials to their patients. And so I think that's more of the interactions that the phase one program has to have with the disease centers. And that's a good way for an early career investigator to think about doing it. Maybe having some disease specialization, but also understanding the phase one offerings and be able to offer them those trials to those specific populations. And one final question. Sure. What words of wisdom would you give your younger self? Can be personal, professional, life, research, doctoring in general. What would that be? Well, that's a very good question. So I would say that, you know, I, I guess... Um, I have always been, a, I've always been a 50-50 person, but, um, so I've tended to try to do laboratory work that then, that then feeds the clinical trials. But I also, so, so I do feel that that's been a very satisfying component of my career to actually have the laboratory do basic and translational work and then try to translate to that to a specific study. Um, my work did become a bit unfocused though when I sort of more broadly became involved in phase one. So I was doing many, many, tri- many, many phase one trials, some of them emanating from my work and some of them not so much, was more just to be involved in a multi-center phase one trial and have that offering for patients as part of my clinical effort. I think ultimately that component of the work might've been distracting. It's not that it wasn't important. It's not that it wasn't good to have those options open to patients. But I think that my feeling would be that um, very, very clear and very, very laser focus is a better way to succeed and get more impact. And so I might have limited the number of trials that I did and, um, and uh, maybe focus more on very specific modalities of trials. For example, the CDK inhibitors or another group of drugs that I work with, the DNA repair inhibitors, and maybe not have such a global portfolio of trials that caused that maybe detracted from my focus a bit. So I think uh, if I gave some advice to my younger self, it would be to maintain the laser focus on the field of interest and that you believe in and the pathways that you feel need to be disrupted and to make sure that those grounds are covered before taking on too many other things. I think the other thing that I wish that I had been a little bit faster uh, to recognize would be the impact of immuno-oncology. And so if I had any maybe advice to give to myself back then, it would have been to become more schooled on the immune microenvironment and on the immunology of cancers a bit more. And I might have been more prepared to understand some of the interactions of our targeted agents with the immune, immune microenvironment as this field moved forward. So I was, um, you know, late to the field of immuno-oncology. I'm still learning a lot of immunology now. And potentially, I wished I had mastered that a little bit sooner. Fair enough. And I know that I said that was the final question. But uh-huh. I have one, one more final. This is the final final. What does it take to be a top doctor in the United States? 
Oh my. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure you're talking to one, but um, no, I think that, well, you have to have, you know, I think you have to have very good training. You have to have good mentors along the way. Um, I think that as far as oncology is concerned, I think um, getting trained in both clinical research, patient care, and basic translational research exposure to all of that is very, very important in order to be able to, uh, you know, master the field and stay on the pulse of the field going forward. So I think a well-rounded training with very, very good mentorship is a good set of ingredients um, that will ultimately help people develop into becoming top physicians. Of course, one can never forget the patient as the focus of one's work, always maintaining one's um, compassion and um, advocacy uh, for patients. And I think that's also another critical component of maintaining uh, oneself at the top of the shelf for, for being a top, top doctor. Thanks so much for being on the show. Sure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. You'll find links to the rest of our episodes on our website, inquisitiveonc.com. There you will also find a collection of weekly blog posts, useful resources, as well as links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. This is Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, a podcast by ADC Productions.